All right. Uh, hello. Welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar and podcast series. I am Cliff Smith, the Washington Project Director of the Middle East Forum. It's great to be here today. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to our guest, Hussein Abdul Hussein, to discuss Iran's efforts to influence and ultimately dominate um, Iraq. Uh, Hussein was born in Beirut, Lebanon, and is a research fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, focusing on uh, the Gulf region. Um, he's a former reporter, editor. He has um, managed the um, been a editor at uh, the Arab um, U.S. sponsored network of Al Hura in Iraq, and is headed the Washington bureau of the Kuwaiti Daily Al Rai. Um, and he has reported on the ground um, in Iraq during the American-led efforts there. So thank you very much for joining us today, Hussein. Um, let me just start by saying that, um, particularly since the Iranian Revolution, it would certainly seem to me that uh, tensions between Iraq and Iran and attempts to influence each other. Um, via war or other ways has been continuous, but particularly since the fall of Saddam Hussein has taken a very different dynamic. And the Iranian efforts to squelch um, an infant um, Iraqi democracy with militias, brute force, um, political subterfuge and such um, have been ongoing. So to start out, can you just give us an overview of what Iran's goals in Iraq are and what various methods they use to accomplish these goals? Thank you, Cliff, and thanks to the Middle East Forum for having me. Uh, to answer this question, I'll have to just briefly uh, just, just say how Iran was designed. Now, everyone talks about exporting the revolution, but what does this mean? Uh, when Khomeini took over, his idea was just to be the man in charge, but not to govern. And there are, there's a lot of literature how the economy was bad at the time, and how when asked uh, Khomeini said that the revolution did not come to lower uh, the price of watermelons. So his idea was that the government will keep on governing, but he, he'll only have the upper say on, on, on everything in the state. And then around this idea, they uh, started the IRGC, which was designed to counter any possible comeback of the old regime, of the Shah regime. And eventually you have now two states in Iran, the the formal state, which is much weaker, the regular army, the Artesh and the, the, the institutions. And this is the state that gets elected by the people. And then you have the actual state, which is under Khomeini at the time, now under Khamenei. It has its own army, the RGC, it has its own economy. And this is a, a much more dominant, even though it's, it's in the back state. So when we say exporting the revolution, we mean that Iran wants to replicate its model in countries where it can dominate and can ha have influence. And this experiment, uh, they uh, applied to Lebanon where it uh, succeeded to a, to a large part. You have, a, you have an elected government and elected the prime minister and president, but at the same time, Hezbollah and its chief Hassan Nasrallah, they call the shots, they decide everything and everyone. And uh, one way of doing this is that they use targeted violence in terms of assass assassination. They go after anyone who refuses this model. When the Saddam Hussein regime fell in 2003, uh, since then the Iranians have been trying to replicate this model again to replicate their success in Lebanon, replicate it in Iran. Now, the, the problem is that in Lebanon, you have four or five million people, one million of them are Shia. And one million in terms of budget, that's easy to handle for something like the Iranian budget. But in Iraq, you have 20 million Shia. And not only that, the government of Iraq uh, brings in $10 billion a month. So over the past year, the Iraqi government 
made 120 million, spent half of them, and Iraq now has a surplus of 60 billion. So Iran cannot really swallow a, a group as big as 20 million Iraqis. And at the same time, it cannot fund all, all of these Iraqis, especially that the Iraqi state has more resources than the Iranian state. But Iran has not given up on this idea of, uh, of trying to replicate its model in, in, uh, in Iraq. Like in Lebanon, now they have their militias that are outside the state that practice targeted, targeted violence against anyone who opposes dominance, uh, Iranian dominance uh, in Iraq. And they've been trying to take over the, the government. They obstruct government when elections uh, don't go their way, which happened um, in October of 2021, when, when the uh, Iranian pro-Iranian cans just, just miserably lost the election. So the Iraqi population, the Iraqi Shia population is not as pro-Iran as the Lebanese Shia population. It's big and diverse and it has resources. And the Iranians have, have had trouble just bringing all of them under its wing. And you have to remember that Iraq also has um, claim to the Shia leadership of, in, in terms of religion, because Najaf is more important than, than Qom of Iran. So the, Iraq proved to be different. Now, what the Iranians have been trying to do is that they've, they've been trying to control the state and at the same time use the state in, in, in such a way to, uh, to benefit. So for example, they've been using Iraq to circumvent US sanctions on Iran. Uh, all the surplus that Iraq has in terms of foreign currency, especially dollars, the Iranians have been vacuuming out of Iraq. And even though Iraq has all this surplus, now the Iraqi dinar finds itself uh, weaker uh, time and again. So uh, these things, the Iranians, they've been using Iraq to get foreign currency. They've been using Iraq as another host of their militias. Um, so all the uh, 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 terrorism that they, they sponsor throughout the region, now they have two bases. One of them is, is certain in their pocket, which is Lebanon, but the bigger one that's not certain uh, is in Iraq. And, and we've seen the Iraqi, the Iraqi Shia push back against the uh, Iranians and being killed and assassinated for it. Uh, so, so far, there's, there's a big constituency of Iraqi Shia that's pushing against the, the, the pro-Iran Shia, even though I have to say that at this point, the pro-Iran Shia have the upper hand. And especially that no one has come to the rescue. When, when the Iraqi Shia uh, took out to the street, they burned down all the posters of Khamenei and, and Soleimani and all these guys. Uh, and, and Iran practiced violence against them. No one came to their rescue, especially the United States. We didn't really try to practice any pressure on the Iraqi state just to keep these, these militias away from, from, from the Iraqi population that opposes the, the Iran uh, pressure on Iraq. So, uh, so far... Go no, please finish. No, no, I, I was just uh, going to conclude by saying so far it's been a mixed bag for the Iranians. Uh, they mm -hmm. have the advantage in Iraq, but uh, not all is lost like in Lebanon. Lebanon is totally lost to Iran. Iraq still has some, some hope for anyone who wants to push back the Iranian interests. So you mentioned just the exporting, um, you know, the revolution. You mentioned that, you know, they, they have Lesbolah, excuse me, Lebanon via Hezbollah, you know, completely under their control, less so Iraq. It, does Iraq feature more prominently in their plans? I mean, is it sort of the, the, the crown rule that they really want, or is it just another country they would also like to dominate? Well, Iraq is, is certainly much, much more important than, than Lebanon, Syria, and Yemen put together. 
I mean, first of all, if they can subdue the Iraqi, uh, the Shia uh, leadership in southern Iraq, in Najaf, which has much more prestige than the Iranian leadership of the Shia world, if they manage to subdue that, that's a big obstacle to the Iranian claim to the leadership of the Shia world. And, and by Shia world, we mean globally, including in, in Pakistan and in India and in North America and everywhere. So one thing uh, is, is to subdue this, this uh, Shia authority in the South, which opposes the idea of the Islamic government as practiced in Iran and, and, and the theory of, of Khomeini. So this is number one. Number two, because the, because the, the United States has not cut Iraq from the global economic system because of course, after the war on Iraq, we just felt that we own the country and we have to help them come back. And Iran, Iraq is making $10 billion a month. We're not cut, cutting them off. And Iran sees an opportunity to grasp. So that's what I've been doing. Even though recently uh, uh, the Fed has been, uh, we've threatened Iraq by saying, okay, listen, uh, you have to uh, come up with a solution for this. You can't keep on just uh, letting money go off to the black market and eventually to the RGC hands. So now the Iraqi Central Bank has taken some measures, um, but um, I'm sure there, there are still a lot, a lot of loopholes. But the Iranians, what, I mean, an, another big reason, in addition to Iraq being this, this big Shia state, Mind you, Iraq is the uh, is probably the only, except for Bahrain, but Iraq is the only uh, Arab country that has a clear Shia majority. All other countries and all other countries, the, the Shia is a minority. So, in addition to being the Shia majority country, this this enormous income of oil the Iranians would like to to make use of. Um, you've written a lot about the last year or so on what has happened in Iraq's parliament. Uh, has numerous factions that is not immune from pressure from um, militia, the militias you've been speaking of. Uh, for a year, they were um, unable to form a government. Um, yet, um, last year, you wrote, despite the dominance of pro-Iranian blocs, the new cabinet also has a patriotic and law-abiding ministers with whom America can work to continue to build Iraqi state's capacity and developing its nascent democracy. However, a few weeks, weeks later, you also wrote that Al-Sudani, the new prime minister, has tried to depict himself as an independent nonpartisan who stands for equal treatment from everyone. So far, he has not um, looked as impartial as he claimed. On the contrary, he has proven extremely biased towards the policies of Iran and the regime in Iraq. So how did all this happen? As much background as you want, and, and how is it changing on the ground? So what happened was that the pro-Iran factions lost the election. But they obstructed the government. They said, okay, nothing will be formed unless we get our say. And I think they were losing because the, uh, the anti-Iran um, groups managed to form a majority. So you had Sadr plus the Kurds plus the Sunnis, and they got a clear majority in parliament. And they elected a speaker against the pro-Iran uh, faction wishes and they were on their way to elect a president and you know, the president designates the prime minister and then forms a cabinet with, with the pro-Iran factions having less than 10% of the seats in parliament, in which case Iran would have lost completely any control of the Iraqi state and veto power. So this was going as planned on the part of the anti-Iraq factions until two things happened. Number one, uh, the Iran managed to pressure the Iraqi Supreme Court 
to reinterpret what constitutes a quorum to elect a president. And they raised that from one half to two thirds. And by doing so, the, the majority that existed, that was slightly more than half parliament of 325 divided, so it's, it was 165, they had probably 175. So that majority was not good enough for these guys to continue electing a president and forming a cabinet without the, the, the Iran factions. And, and this imposed a stalemate. And then Sadr, who had the biggest block with, 70, with 73 uh, uh, MPs, he committed one of his huge blunders, of course, because after all these years, he's still an amateur in politics. He committed a blunder of forcing his block to quit. Now get this, the irony is that the Iraqi constitution says, if an, uh, if an MP gets quits or, or dies or gets incapacitated or whatever, he or she gets replaced by the, the, the candidate who won the second highest amount of votes. In this case, all the losers, 70, 73 losers who, who support Iran made it to parliament to replace the ones who opposed Iran. So overnight you had a shift in, in parliament where the Iranian factions were a minority to, being, to becoming the, best, the, the biggest bloc again. And when that happened, taking over the state again was a matter of time. Now, as the Iranian factions took over, uh, they still had to play along with the Kurds and the Sunnis and the other factions. So there's this small corner of, of, of neutral, of patriot, of you know, just, just like uh, uh, honest and honorable ministers who were appointed. Uh, the thing is, Sudani himself, um, who, was, who, who was the weak character. I, I mean, the, the reason why Sudani was, was chosen was because everyone thought that he's too weak. He doesn't threaten anyone of the big powers, especially uh, former uh, Prime Minister Maliki who's always trying to make a comeback. So Sudani was chosen. And I thought that once chosen, Sudani might, uh, might grow into his position, just like Maliki did. Maliki was chosen as a weak candidate and then he became you know, the, the alpha and the omega in the country. So I thought Sudani would probably show uh, what he has, except that Sudani just remained neutral and weak. And what you have now is that with a weak prime minister, everything is open to, uh, to bullying from the, uh, from the Iranian bloc. So the ministers that I had hoped will, will move or, or will show some enforcement, some, some law enforcement against the militias. These guys are now hunkering down because they're scared if they go against or if they, if they do what they think must be done, they won't have the backing of, of the prime minister. And without the backing of the prime minister, who's, who I said, I think he's too weak and incompetent more than he's, he's pro-Iran. He's just, he's just trying to, to stay in the prime minister mansion and not do anything. So as this is the case, I don't think the guys that I, had, I was betting on are now able to do anything that can annoy Iran or push back the pro-Iran factions. Sobering. Uh, so I'm gonna ask a couple more questions and then we'll get to audience questions. So if you want to ask a question, please type it into the Q&A box and we will get to it in a few minutes. Um, till we do that. Um, you've also written about how the Kurdish Democratic Party is generally friendly to the US, as all the Peshmerga, the Kurdish militias um, that was a US partner in defeating ISIS. Um, how does um, Iraq and Iran's Kurdish population and political movements factor into Iran's efforts to dominate Iraq? Well, 
First of all, let me say that the KDP, the Kurdish Democratic Party, has been one of the most reliable uh, US allies in Iraq over the past 20 years, at least, since the war in Iraq. And, and these, these guys have been reliable. And when ISIS suddenly took over Mosul in 2014 and started pushing uh, north toward the Kurdistan region and toward Baghdad, the Kurdish Peshmerga of the KDP were the first on the, on the front lines pushing back with our support. So these guys deserve all, all the support, except that I think with this administration, the thinking that any support that we show to parties that are independent or you know that do not go by the Iran regime uh, rules and regulations of the region might be seen as provocation against the regime and that might affect or undermine the nuclear talks. So we're kind of thrown these KDP guys under the bus. And KDP, mind you, over the past um, 10 years, it has turned into the region where all the dissidents, all the Iraqi dissidents who oppose the Iranian dominance of Iraq, that's where they live. They all go to Erbil and Kurdistan and they take refuge because they know that this autonomous region is somehow safe for them. So what the Iranians have been doing is that they've been pressuring KDP uh, number one, they've been uh, targeting them directly with missiles and drones from, from Iranian territory. And number two, they're having the pro-Iran uh, Shia militias of Iraq also target the, the KDP. And this KDP, even though uh, in our appropriations, we have, uh, we've allocated money to go to the Peshmerga, which is a, a constitutional militia by the, 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 the Iraq constitution is the equivalent of a national guard. But we uh, let this money go through through the central government in, in, in Baghdad. And when this happens, the Kurds don't get what they want to get. So if you look now, all the militias in the region have drones thanks to, to uh, Iran, but this KDP, all the, these Kurdish militias are the only ones who are deprived of this kind of technology, which makes them much weaker than everybody else. Then number two, there's, there's another thing about the, the Kurdistan region. Kurdistan has a lot of gas that they can export to Turkey. And when they do that, this takes out the, uh, the market that the Iranian gas has in Turkey. So Iran is competing with, with, with any competitors over the Turkish market. So every time the Kurds try to set up connection to, just to pump to, uh, to Turkey, the Iranians do two things. Number one, they strike, they actually strike with missiles, either houses or installations in, in, Kurdistan, in Iraqi Kurdistan. And number two, they instruct the uh, government in, in Iraq, which is you know, pro-Iran to an extent, they instruct it to uh, obstruct uh, the Kurds from pumping. They say, okay, this is illegal. And under the federal constitution, you can't do it. You have to, to con consult with us. So the Kurdish issue in Iraq has been a thorny issue for, for Iran. And this expanded to the Iranian side because we know Mahsa Amini was was Kurd was 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 an Iranian Kurd from from the uh, northwest, so so these two Kurdish populations are now restive and unhappy with with the way that the Iranian regime has been trying uh, has been treating both of them, and I think both of them have been trying to push back, except that there's no support that's coming from from countries, especially from the United States. Before uh, we get to audience questions, one last one. Um, most of the Gulf region opposes Iran's attempts to dominate Iraq. Um, what role does U the U.S. Gulf allies, Saudi Arabia, UAE, so on and so forth, um, 
do they have to play in all this? Do they work actively in opposing Iran in Iraq, or are they just sideline on the sidelines? Well, I think what what they've been doing is that their general policy is that uh, the the Gulf countries tend to support states against militias, so they they're the antithesis of the Iranian model. They want strong states with whom you can deal with negatively or positively. And what the Iranians do that they support the militias. So the Gulf states end up supporting governments, constitution, parliaments, election, and, and what have you. And the Iranians undermine these governments. Uh, what, the, uh, what, what, the, what Saudi Arabia has been doing all along has been trying to prop up or push or make common cause with the moderate Shia, with Sistani in Najaf, with, you know, uh, with whoever wants to support the state, with whoever opposes uh, uh, armed militias outside state control. And they do this in, in Iraq and, and they tried to do this in Lebanon, but I think now the Gulf and especially Saudi Arabia decided that, that Lebanon is, is a lost cause. There's, there's, no, um, uh, there's, there's nothing good that comes out of throwing more money and support on Lebanon, but they have not given up on Iraq. So as we speak now, I think the Gulf nations still bet on, on, on the moderate Iraqis, on the Iraqi state. And let me say that uh, the UAE in particular bets a lot on, on Kurdistan, on the KDP and the Kurds. And, and, and the UAE has a lot of investments in the um, fossil fuel industry in Kurdistan. So, uh, and, and when, they, when Kurdistan uh, wanted, when, when they had the referendum over secession or independence, the UAE was among the few states that really supported the Kurdish aspiration. So. And, and, and I'd say the main reason why they do so is because they like states and they like and, and they oppose militias. And of course, you add this to the rivalry with Iran, so it all adds up. So you find the, the, the Gulf states just taking um, the, the, the side of the government all the time, uh, offering uh, financial support, offering diplomatic support, and, and playing perhaps most of the time playing the role that, that the U.S. should be doing, but that we're not uh, playing because you know we're trying not to provoke Iran. We're trying, you know, to make nice with Iran all the time uh, to get them to the nuclear deal. All right, two audience questions. Um, Mohammed El Saleri asks: Between Iraq and Lebanon, where do you think um, civil society efforts against Iranian encroachment are more likely to work? Well, I have to say that. Uh, both countries have shown uh, that they have uh, civil society activists who have been trying to push back. The problem in, in both countries is the same, is that uh, Iran and its militias um, use targeted violence against these people, and more so in Iraq than, than in Lebanon. So over the past, uh, uh, over the, the period of, of two years, we've seen, uh, uh, pro-Iran militias take out through assassination at least a dozen Iraqi civil society activists. In Lebanon, I think the number was two at most, which is horrible still, but uh, the, the idea is that Iraq is a bigger population and it has a longer tradition of having non-religious, non-tribal parties. Lebanon is a much smaller population. Everyone belongs to one of the big blocks commanded by the, the, the oligarchs, the, the ethno-sectarian oligarchs. And the, the civil society is much smaller and much weaker. So, but in, in any case, uh, Iran treats them both similarly. Whenever they feel that any one of them threatens 
the Iranian uh, chokeholds on power, or maybe uh, is trying to agitate the Shia population, whether in Iraq or in Lebanon against Iranian dominance, they go ahead and take them out. And, and this violence has just undermined everything. I mean, you know, we, uh, we know that in Lebanon, there's no president and no cabinet because of this uh, Iranian uh, threat of violence all the times. And, and the same thing happens in Iraq from time to time. Someone asks, um, how likely is it for Iran to eventually take effective control of Iraq similar to Lebanon? Well, I, I think it's, it's much, much harder. Uh, they've been trying. Uh, I don't see it happening, even though uh, I think the, the Iranians, they've been trying to replicate something similar to Hezbollah, a Shia power that's central and that can dominate Iraq and, and be connected directly to Iran. And they have an Iraqi Hezbollah, which they've been trying to prop up. Uh, so far, this Hezbollah has not managed to take over uh, anything, not, not even the Shia community. So even within the Shia of Iraq, uh, politics is, is more, much more divided than in Lebanon. Like we said, in Lebanon, you have 1 million and, and Hezbollah easily commands 700,000 of them. In Iraq, you have 20 million and, and, and Iran also commands 700,000 of them, which doesn't really count for much. And when there was a quick round of, of civil war, uh, two days of violence between the, the pro-Southern militias and the pro-Iran militias, the, the pro-Southern militias gave the Iranian ones a beating. And that's because the numbers are not big because uh, there's an alternative. In, in Lebanon, if you're Shia, working for Hezbollah is, is one of your very few choices to make a living. In Iraq, the government is really I mean, they can really pay you. You can really join the government, the civil service, which is probably the biggest in the world. And the government can, you, know, you can make a living even by not going to a militia. So the militia factor in Iraq has not been as popular as, as Lebanon. And you don't have the equivalent of Nasrallah in, in Iraq. And I don't see it likely coming. And even for those who try, you end up having four or five Nasrallah which, beats, which, which defeats the purpose because these guys would be at loggerheads and at loggerheads and, and just and fighting will, will be going on all the time. Um, recently, Iraq passed a law prohibiting any normalization with the Zionist, Zionist entity. Now, this comes at a time where, of course, the Abraham Accords, many other Arab states are going the opposite direction. Can this be attributed to Iran's influence or is this more domestic cultural things, do you believe? Well, I think both. So first of all, if, if you look at the law, it was the, the language of the law is, is really so horrible that any, any, any person with any knowledge of, of laws and the constitution will tell you this, is, this, is, this was badly written. And, and it holds people responsible, including the huge diaspora. So any Iraqi who lives in Dubai, who comes across an Israeli, they'll have their property confiscated in Iraq. That's how absurd the law is. And num number, uh, number one, number two, uh, it goes after the, the Zionists and it goes after the Freemasons. And it goes after, and you're thinking, what has the Freemasons to do in this? So, so you get a sense that whoever wrote this was really someone who had no idea about, about laws and regulations and legislation. Uh, I think the reason why, and this, this law was, was pushed mainly by Sadr. And the reason why he pushed for it was that the Iranian militias try to put their rivals under pressure of a 
of accusing them of not standing up to the American presence in Iraq. They say, okay, look, we have 3,000, 4,000 American military advisors, and, and you're not trying to uh, eject them from the country, so you're pro-America. So we are, we're patriotic and you're not. So what, what, these, what, what these people do, like Sadr, who are not really pushing to eject US military advisors, what they do is that they use Israel as a stand-in. So they say, okay, look, you know, we're, we're against imperialism in America and Israel because to, to, in, in many minds, in many Iraqi minds, these are one and the same. So they up the ante on Israel just to, uh, just to re release pressure. And this thing, same thing has been happening in Kuwait and, and Oman. Whenever you see uh, the rulers feeling some weakness, especially against uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, what they do is that they, they re-channel the pressure against Israel. And of course, we know Israel has been the, the best bogeyman that they've been using over the past 70 years. So I think Sadr tried to use this law, even though no one knows that, I mean, I mean there, there are no reports that, it, that it's being enforced in any way or form, because otherwise Iraq will have to stop importing anything, because any company that has any branch or, or that does any business in Israel will have to, uh, it's, it's, its commodities won't be uh, imported into Iraq, which is not the case. So it was born without any enforcement to start with. One last question. Um, Harold Walker asked, what about economic means of pressure? Um, in other words, does Iran use um, you know, imports, exports, trade? You know, what, what other non-military, non-strictly political tools does it use against to, to dominate Iraq? Well, with US sanctions on Iran and no US sanctions on Iraq, which is just uh, accumulating surpluses in the, in the tens of billions of dollars, Iraq is much stronger than Iran when it comes to, uh, to economics and money. Uh, so the Iranians, all the time, they have to balance out, you know, they're trying to pressure Iraq, but at the same time, they're trying to keep uh, Iraq going. They, want, they don't want to push Iraq to the point where the US says, okay, you know, you'll go under sanctions too. So on one hand, they want to keep Iraq as it is because they think it's uh, the, the, you know, the, the the chicken that gives them golden eggs. But on the other hand, they're trying to control Iraq. So they, they don't have the tools to do so. Even if they wanted to, they don't have the economic tools to apply any pressure on the Iraqis. Mm -hmm. Understood. Look, thank you. This has been fascinating. Uh, we all hope that uh, things get better in, in Iraq. Um, we know it's been a battleground between uh, uh, America and its allies um, in the region, as well as Iran, for many years. And we really appreciate your expertise. So thank you very much. And uh, we will be back um, next week with more webinars. We hope you can join us then. Thank you. Thank you, Cliff.